Section 58 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matea Bracic. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. The Old Actors, London Magazine, April 1822. The artificial comedy, or comedy of manners, is quite extinct on our stage. Congreve and Farquhar show their heads once in seven years, only to be exploded and put down instantly. The times cannot bear them. Is it for a few wild speeches, an occasional license of dialogue? I think not altogether. The business of their dramatic characters will not stand the moral test. We screw everything up to that. Idle gallantry in a fiction, a dream, the passing pageant of an evening, startles us in the same way as the alarming indications of profligacy in a son or ward in real life should startle a parent or guardian. We have no such middle emotions as dramatic interest left. We see a stage libertine playing his loose pranks of two hours' duration, and of no after-consequence, with the severe eyes which inspect real vices with their bearings upon two worlds. We are spectators to a plot or intrigue, not reducible in life to the point of strict morality, and take it all for truth. We substitute a real for a dramatic person, and judge him accordingly. We try him in our courts, from which there is no appeal to the dramatis personae, his peers. We have been spoiled with, not sentimental comedy, but a tyrant far more pernicious to our pleasures which has succeeded to it, the exclusive and all-devouring drama of common life, where the moral point is everything, where, instead of the fictitious half-believed personages of the stage, the phantoms of old comedy, we recognise ourselves, our brothers, aunts, kinsfolk, allies, patrons, enemies, the same as in life, with an interest in what is going on so hearty and substantial that we cannot afford our moral judgment in its deepest and most vital results to compromise or slumber for a moment. What is there transacting by no modification is made to affect us in any other manner than the same events or characters would do in our relationships of life. We carry our fireside concerns to the theatre with us. We do not go thither like our ancestors to escape from the pressure of reality so much as to confirm our experience of it, to make assurance double and take a bond of fate. We must live our toilsome lives twice over, as it was the mournful privilege of Ulysses to descend twice to the shades. All that neutral ground of character which stood between vice and virtue, or which, in fact, was indifferent to neither, where neither properly was called in question, that happy breathing place from the burden of a perpetual moral questioning, the sanctuary and quiet Alsatia of hunted casuistry, is broken up and disfranchised as injurious to the interests of society. The privileges of the place are taken away by law. We dare not dally with images or names of wrong. We bark like foolish dogs at shadows. We dread infection from the scenic representation of disorder and fear a painted pustule. In our anxiety that our morality should not take cold, we wrap it up in a great 
blanket surtout of precaution against the breeze and sunshine i confess for myself that with no great delinquencies to answer for i am glad for a season to take an airing beyond the diocese of the strict conscience not to live always in the precincts of the law courts but now and then for a dream while or so to imagine a world with no meddling restrictions to get into recesses whither the hunter cannot follow me secret shades of woody ida's inmost grove while yet there was no fear of jove i come back to my cage and my restraint the fresher and more healthy for it i wear my shackles more contentedly for having respired the breath of an imaginary freedom i do not know how it is with others but i feel the better always for the perusal of one of congreve's nay why should i not add even of wycherley's comedies i am the gayer at least for it and i could never connect those sports of a witty fancy in any shape with any result to be drawn from them to imitation in real life they are a world of themselves almost as much as a fairyland take one of their characters male or female with few exceptions they are all alike and place it in a modern play and my virtuous indignation shall rise against the profligate wretch as warmly as the catos of the pit could desire because in a modern play i am to judge of right and wrong and the standard of police is the measure of poetical justice the atmosphere will blight it it cannot thrive there it is got into a moral world where it has no business from which it must needs fall headlong as dizzy and incapable of keeping its stand as a swedenborgian bad spirit that has wandered unawares within the spear of one of his good men or angels but in its own world do we feel the creature is so very bad the fainals and the mirabels the dorimons and lady touchwoods in their own sphere do not offend my moral sense or in fact appeal to it at all they seem engaged in their proper element they break through no laws or conscientious restraints they know of none they have got out of christendom into the land what shall i call it of cuckoldry the utopia of gallantry where pleasure is duty and the manners perfect freedom it is altogether a speculative scene of things which has no reference whatever to the world that is no good person can be justly offended as a spectator because no good person suffers on the stage judged morally every character in these plays the few exceptions only are mistakes is alike essentially vain and worthless the great art of congreve is especially shown in this that he has entirely excluded from his scenes some little generosities in the part of angelica perhaps excepted not only anything like a faultless character but any pretensions to a goodness or good feelings whatsoever whether he did this designedly or instinctively the effect is as happy as the design if design was bold i used to wonder at the strange power which his way of the world in particular possesses of interesting you all along in the pursuit of characters for whom you absolutely care nothing for you neither hate nor love his personages and i think it is owing to this very indifference for any that you endure the whole he has spread a privation of moral light i will call it rather than by the ugly name of palpable darkness over his creations 
and his shadows flit before you without distinction or preference had he introduced a good character a single gush of moral feeling a revulsion of the judgment to actual life and actual duties the impertinent caution would have only lighted to the discovery of deformities which now are none because we think them none translated into real life the characters of his and his friend Wycherley's dramas are profligates and strumpets the business of their brief existence the undivided pursuit of lawless gallantry no other spring of action or possible motive of conduct is recognized principles which universally acted upon must reduce this frame of things to a chaos but we do them wrong in so translating them no such effects are produced in their world when we are among them we are amongst the chaotic people we are not to judge them by our usages no reverend institutions are insulted by their proceedings for they have none among them no piece of families is violated for no family ties exist among them no purity of the marriage bed is stained for none is supposed to have a being no deep affections are disquieted no holy wedlock bands are snapped asunder for affection's depth and wedded faith are not of the growth of that soil there is neither right nor wrong gratitude or its opposite claim or duty paternity or sonship of what consequence is it to virtue or how is she at all concerned about it whether sir simon or dapper wit steal away miss martha or who is the father of lord frothy's or sir paul pliant's children the whole is a passing pageant where we should sit as unconcerned at the issues for life or death as at a battle of the frogs and mice but like don quixote we take part against the puppets and quite as impertinently we dare not contemplate an atlantis a scheme out of which our coxcombical moral sense is for a little transitory ease excluded we have not the courage to imagine a state of things for which there is neither reward nor punishment we cling to the painful necessities of shame and blame we would indict our very dreams amidst the mortifying circumstances attendant upon growing old it is something to have seen the school for scandal in its glory this comedy grew out of congreve and Mucheli, but gathered some malaise of the sentimental comedy which followed theirs it is impossible that it should now be acted though it continues at long intervals to be announced in the bills its hero when palmer played it at least was joseph surface when i remember the gay boldness the graceful solemn plausibility the measured step the insinuating voice to express it in a word the downright acted villainy of the part so different from the pressure of conscious actual wickedness the hypocritical assumption of hypocrisy which made jack so deservedly a favourite in that character i must needs conclude the present generation of playgoers more virtuous than myself or more dense i freely confess that he divided the palm with me with his better brother that in fact i liked him quite as well not but there are passages like that for instance where joseph is made to refuse a pittance to a poor relation incongruities which sheridan was forced upon by the attempt to join the artificial with the sentimental comedy either of which must destroy the other 
but over these obstructions jack's manner floated him so lightly that a refusal from him no more shocked you than the easy compliance of charles gave you in reality any pleasure you got over the paltry question as quickly as you could to get back into the regions of pure comedy where no cold moral reigns the highly artificial manner of palmer in this character counteracted every disagreeable impression which you might have received from the contrast supposing them real between the two brothers you did not believe in joseph with the same faith with which you believed in charles the latter was a pleasant reality the former a no less pleasant poetical foil to it the comedy, I have said, is incongruous, a mixture of congruity with sentimental incompatibilities. The gaiety upon the whole is buoyant, but it required the consummate art of Palmer to reconcile the discordant elements. A player with Jack's talents, if we had one now, would not dare to do the part in the same manner. He would instinctively avoid every turn which might tend to unrealize, and so to make the character fascinating. He must take his cue from his spectators, who would expect a bad man and a good man as rigidly opposed to each other as the deathbeds of those geniuses are contrasted in the prints, which I am sorry to see have disappeared from the windows of my old friend Carrington Bowles of St. Paul's Churchyard memory, an exhibition as venerable as the adjacent cathedral, and almost coeval, of the bad and good man at the hour of death with the ghastly apprehensions of the former, and truly the grim phantom with his reality of a toasting fork is not to be despised, so finely contrast with the meek, complacent kissing of the rod, taking it in like honey and butter, with which the latter submits to the scythe of the gentle bleeder, Time, who wields his lancet with the apprehensive finger of a popular young lady's surgeon what flesh like loving grass would not covet to meet half-way the stroke of such a delicate mower john palmer was twice an actor in this exquisite part he was playing to you all the while that he was playing upon sir peter and his lady you had the first intimation of a sentiment before it was on his lips his altered voice was meant to you and you were to suppose that his fictitious co-flutterers on the stage perceived nothing at all of it what was it to you if that half-reality the husband was overreached by the puppetry or the thin thing lady teasel's reputation was persuaded it was dying of a plethory the fortunes of othello and desdemona were not concerned in it poor jack has passed from the stage in good time that he did not live to this our age of seriousness the fidgety pleasant old teasel king too is gone in good time his manner would scarce have passed current in our day we must love or hate acquit or condemn censure or pity exert our detestable coxcombry of moral judgment upon everything Joseph Surface, to go down now, must be a downright revolting villain, no compromise. His first appearance must shock and give horror. His specious plausibilities, which the pleasurable faculties of our fathers welcomed with such hearty greetings, knowing that no harm, dramatic harm even, could come, or was meant to come of them, must inspire a cold and killing aversion. 
charles the real canting person of the scene for the hypocrisy of joseph has its ulterior legitimate ends but his brother's professions of a good heart centre in downright self-satisfaction must be loved and joseph hated to balance one disagreeable reality with another sir peter teasel must be no longer the comic idea of a fretful old bachelor bridegroom whose teasings while king acted it were evidently as much played off at you as they were meant to concern anybody on the stage he must be a real person capable in law of sustaining an injury a person towards whom duties are to be acknowledged the genuine crim con antagonist of the villainous seducer joseph to realise him more his sufferings under his unfortunate match must have the downright pungency of life must or should make you not mirthful but uncomfortable just as the same predicament would move you in a neighbour or old friend the delicious scenes which give the play its name and zest must affect you in the same serious manner as if you heard the reputation of a dear female friend attacked in your real presence crabtree and sir benjamin those poor snakes that lived but in the sunshine of your mirth must be ripened by this hotbed process of realisation into asps or amphibians and mrs candor oh frightful become a hooded serpent oh who that remembers parsons and dodd the wasp and butterfly of the school for scandal in those two characters and charming natural miss pope the perfect gentlewoman as distinguished from the fine lady of comedy in this latter part would forego the true scenic delight the escape from life the oblivion of consequences the holiday barring out of the pedant reflection those saturnalia of two or three brief hours well won from the world to sit instead at one of our modern plays to have his coward conscience that forsooth must not be left for a moment stimulated with perpetual appeals dulled rather and blunted as a faculty without repose must be and his moral vanity pampered with images of notional justice notional beneficence lives saved without the spectator's risk and fortunes given away that cost the author nothing no piece was perhaps ever so completely cast in all its parts as this manager's comedy miss farren had succeeded to mrs abington in lady teasel and smith the original charles had retired when i first saw it the rest of the characters with very slight exceptions remained i remembered it was then the fashion to cry down john kemble who took the part of charles after smith but i thought very unjustly smith i fancy was more airy and took the eye with a certain gaiety of person he brought with him no sombre recollections of tragedy he had not to expiate the fault of having pleased beforehand in lofty declamation he had no sins of hamlet or of richard to atone for his failure in these parts was a passport to success in one of so opposite a tendency but as far as i could judge the weighty sense of kemble made up for more personal incapacity than he had to answer for his harshest tones in this part came steeped and dulcified in good humour he made his defects a grace his exact 
declamatory manner as he managed it only served to convey the point of his dialogue with more precision it seemed to head the shafts to carry them deeper not one of his sparkling sentences was lost i remember minutely how he delivered each in succession and cannot by any effort imagine how any of them could be altered for the better no man could deliver brilliant dialogue the dialogue of congreve or of wycherley because none understood it half so well as john kemble his valentine in love for love was to my recollection faultless he flagged sometimes in the intervals of tragic passion he would slumber over the level parts of an heroic character his macbeth has been known to nod but he always seemed to me to be particularly alive to pointed and witty dialogue the relaxing levities of tragedy have not been touched by any since him the playful court-bred spirit in which he condescended to the players in hamlet the sportive relief which he threw into the darker shades of richard disappeared with him tragedy is become a uniform dead weight they have fastened lead to her buskins she never pulls them off for the ease of a moment to invert a commonplace from niobe she never forgets herself to liquefaction john had his sluggish moods his torpors but they were the halting stones and resting-places of his tragedy politic savings and fetches of the breath husbandry of the lungs where nature pointed him to be an economist rather i think than errors of the judgment they were at worst less painful than the eternal tormenting unappeasable vigilance the lidless dragon eyes of present fashionable tragedy the story of his swallowing opium pills to keep him lively upon the first night of a certain tragedy we may presume to be a piece of retaliatory pleasantry on the part of the suffering author but indeed john had the art of diffusing a complacent equable dullness which you knew not where to quarrel with over a piece which he did not like beyond any of his contemporaries john kemble had made up his mind early that all the good tragedies which could be written had been written and he resented any new attempt his shells were full the old standards were scope enough for his ambition he ranged them absolute and fair in otway full in shakespeare shown he succeeded to the old lawful thrones and did not care to adventure bottomry with a sir edward mortimer or any casual spectator that offered i remember too acutely for my piece the deadly extinguisher which he put upon my friend g's antonio g satiate with visions of political justice possibly not to be realized in our time or willing to let the sceptical worldling see that his anticipations of the future did not preclude a warm sympathy for men as they are and have been wrote a tragedy he chose a story affecting romantic spanish the plot simple without being naked the incidents uncommon without being overstrained antonio who gives the name to the piece is a sensitive young castilian who in a fit of his country honour immolates his sister but i must not anticipate the catastrophe the play reader is extant in choice english and you will employ a spare half-crown not injudiciously in the quest of it the conception was bold and the denouement the time and place in which the hero of it existed not much out of keeping 
yet it must be confessed that it required a delicacy of handling both from the author and the performer so as not much to shock the prejudices of a modern english audience g in my opinion had done his part john who was in familiar habits with the philosopher had undertaken to play antonio great expectations were formed a philosopher's first play was a new era the night arrived i was favoured with a seat in an advantageous box between the author and his friend m g sate cheerful and confident in his friend m's looks who had perused the manuscript i read some terror antonio in the person of john philip kemble at length appeared starched out in a ruff which no one could dispute and in most irreproachable mustachios john always dressed most provokingly correct on these occasions the first act swept by solemn and silent it went off as g assured m exactly as the opening act of a piece the protases should do the cue of the spectators was to be mute the characters were but in their introduction the passions and the incidents would be developed hereafter applause hitherto would be impertinent silent attention was the effect all desirable poor m acquiesced but in his honest friendly face i could discern a working which told how much more acceptable the plaudit of a single hand however misplaced would have been than all this reasoning the second act as in duty bound rose a little in interest but still john kept his forces under in policy as g would have it and the audience were most complacently attentive the protasis in fact was scarcely unfolded the interest would warm in the next act against which a special incident was provided m wiped his cheek flushed with a friendly perspiration tis m's way of showing his zeal from every pore of him a perfume falls i honour it above alexander's he had once or twice during this act joined his palms in a feeble endeavour to elicit the sound they emitted a solitary noise without an echo there was no deep to answer to his deep g repeatedly begged him to be quiet the third act at length brought on the scene which was to warm the piece progressively to the final flaming forth of the catastrophe a philosophic calm settled upon the clear brow of g as it approached the lips of m quivered a challenge was held forth upon the stage and there was promise of a fight the pit roused themselves on this extraordinary occasion and as their manner is seemed disposed to make a ring when suddenly antonio who was the challenged turning the tables upon the hot challenger don guzman who by the way should have had his sister balks his humour and the pit's reasonable expectation at the same time with some speeches out of the new philosophy against duelling the audience were here fairly caught their courage was up and on the alert a few blows ding-dong as ours the dramatist afterwards expressed it to me might have done the business when their most exquisite moral sense was suddenly called in to assist in the mortifying negation of their own pleasure they could not applaud for disappointment they could not condemn for morality's sake the interest stood stone still and john's manner was not at all calculated to unpetrify it it was christmas time 
and the atmosphere furnished some pretext for asthmatic affections. One began to cough, his neighbour sympathised with him, till a cough became epidemical. But when, from being half artificial in the pit, the cough got frightfully naturalised among the fictitious persons of the drama, and Antonio himself, albeit it was not set down in the stage directions, seemed more intent upon relieving his own lungs than the distresses of the author and his friends, then G first knew fear, and mildly turning to M, intimidated that he had not been aware that Mr. K laboured under a cold, and that the performance might possibly have been postponed with advantage for some nights further, still keeping the same serene countenance while M sweat like a bull. It would be invidious to pursue the fates of this ill-starred evening. In vain did the plot thicken in the scenes that followed, in vain the dialogue wax more passionate and stirring, and the progress of the sentiment point more and more clearly to the arduous development which impended. In vain the action was accelerated, while the acting stood still. From the beginning John had taken his stand, had wound himself up to an even tenor of stately declamation, from which no exigence of dialogue or person could make him swerve for an instant. To dream of his rising with the scene, the common trick of tragedians, was preposterous, for from the onset he had planted himself, as upon a terrace, on an eminence vastly above the audience, and he kept that sublime level to the end. He looked from his throne of elevated sentiment upon the underworld of spectators with a most sovereign and becoming contempt. There was excellent pathos delivered out to them, and they would receive it so, and they would not receive it so. There was no offence against a quorum in all this, nothing to condemn, to damn, not an irreverent symptom of a sound was to be heard. The procession of verbiage stalked on through four and five acts, no one venturing to predict what would come of it. When towards the winding up of the latter, Antonio, with an irrelevancy that seemed to stagger Elvira herself, for she had been coolly arguing the point of honour with him, suddenly whips out a poniard and stabs his sister to the heart. The effect was as if a murder had been committed in cold blood. The whole house rose up in clamorous indignation, demanding justice. The feeling rose far above hisses. I believe at that instant, if they could have got him, they would have torn the unfortunate author to pieces. Not that the act itself was so exorbitant, or of a complexion different from what they themselves would have applauded upon another occasion in a Brutus or in an Appius, but for want of attending to Antonia's words, which palpably led to the expectation of no less dire an event, instead of being seduced by his manner, which seemed to promise a sleep of a less alarming nature than it was his cue to inflict upon Elvira, they found themselves betrayed into an accompliceship of murder, a perfect misprision of parricide, while they dreamed of nothing less. M, I believe, was the only person who suffered acutely from the failure, for G, thenceforward, with a serenity unattainable but by the true philosophy, abandoning a precarious popularity, retired into his fast hold of speculation. 
the drama in which the world was to be his tiring room and remote posterity his applauding spectators at once and actors elia end of section fifty seven